0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 8th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS.
1: From London, this is The Globalist. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up today, Republican senators in the United States block new funding for Ukraine and Israel, despite appeals from President Joe Biden. Congress, Republicans and Congress are willing to give Putin the greatest gift he could hope for and abandon our global leadership. With border security with Mexico as a stumbling block to continued support for Ukraine, we'll ask what compromises Biden could make. Nigerian hospitals shut wards as thousands of doctors leave the country due to pay and working conditions. We'll speak to a public health consultant about potential solutions for the country. And our design editor Nick Manese is here to tell us what we can expect in the beautiful printed pages of this year's Monocle Alpino. Nick, what have you got for us? Lights,
0: skis and architecturally designed gingerbread houses, Tom.
1: Wow. More from Nick on all of that later. Plus, we'll have a report from the Swiss Alps as ski season begins and the latest film and TV news and, yes, more Andrew Muller's irreverent take on what we've learned this week... We
2: learned how grateful we could find ourselves being that at least the Prime Minister who had been tasked by the fates with leading the nation through this dreadful crisis had not attempted to have us believe that the dog had eaten his cloud storage. All
1: that ahead on The Globalist here on Monocle Radio. First, a quick look at what else is happening in the news. Chinese schools have been urged to step up daily health checks and work with authorities to help stop a wave of respiratory illness among children in recent weeks. G7 interior and security ministers are gathering in Mita in Japan for a three-day summit today as part of the country's ongoing presidency of the G7 group. The mayor of Toulouse has put forward plans to charge residents more for their tap water in summer, while also offering a discount for the rest of the year. And Hayao Miyazaki's new movie, The Boy and the Heron, hits North American theatres today after it was released in Japan in July without a traditional marketing campaign. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on all of those stories. But first up, we begin today's programme in the United States, where Senate Republicans have blocked a bill that would provide over $100 billion in emergency aid for Ukraine and Israel. The vote failed to pass despite dire warnings from the Biden administration that US funding for Kiev will run out in a matter of weeks. A number of Republicans are demanding that any foreign aid to Kiev must be linked to immigration policy changes at the US southern border. Well, for more on this, we're joined now by Natasha Lindstedt, Professor of Government at the University of Essex. Good morning, Natasha. Great to have you with us. Just bring us up to speed. Uh, Remind us about the latest developments.
3: Well, some Republicans, particularly those in the House, but now also we see in the Senate, have grown tired of providing support to to Ukraine. And they've been clear that they want to tie it uh, to uh, their immigration policies. They want more hardline border immigration policies. Uh, And this is honestly not the norm in, in U.S. politics. Normally, provision of foreign aid can pass pretty easily through the House and the Senate. Uh, but it didn't happen in this case because u s. politics has become increasingly polarized, and they're engaging in this game of chicken, which is, of course, affecting uh, Ukraine's uh, chances and, and ability to to fight off and uh, fight the Russians in in this conflict. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that it's over or that Ukraine won't eventually receive some aid, even maybe could pass by the end of the year. But it's just a sign of of how much u s. politics is in disarray due to the fact that the Republicans are, are trying to tie foreign aid to other uh, parts of their agenda.
1: Well, this is what I was going to ask you about, which is the this, this sort of politicisation of something that traditionally we would like to think would be largely a- apolitical in terms of foreign aid. I- is it impossible to look at the domestic US political machinations of this without the confines of going into a big general election year? I mean, that completely reshapes the narrative, correct?
3: Right. And I and I think that the Republicans are finding that immigration is probably one of the more important issues for for Republican voters, Uh, that second only to inflation and perceptions about the economy. So I think they want to have a a big win here and they think that this is going to be more popular than continuing to provide aid to to Ukraine. Um, they've highlighted, particularly some members of the House, have highlighted how expensive it is. That it's you know around 77 billion. Now this is only 0.33 percent of the U.S.'s. Uh, GDP, U.S. aid to Ukraine. But for the average American voter, they may not know that. And the uh, right wing uh, media in the U.S. highlights all the issues with immigration and how it's broken and and the need for much harder conservative policies on that. And I think they think this is going to be a big win for them and will play out well with their supporters.
1: Well, yeah, I was going to ask about Nikki Haley. Um, She's been gaining in the polls in recent weeks. Um, It's been interesting to see the kind of scrutiny some of her uh, stance on foreign foreign policy questions has drawn. Uh, She broadly backs aid to Ukraine, Israel, etc. That trajectory in and of itself is interesting.
3: Yeah, so she is one of the more experience, let's say, at least with foreign policy candidates on the Republican side and more of like a traditional Republican candidate who believes in supporting, you know, Democratic allies with a lot of military support. And uh, she's more in line with Mitch McConnell in, in the Senate. Uh, but this is not the way the direction the Republican Party is is going as of late. You know, they've been really focusing more on Trump and Trump you know, leads Nikki Haley in the polls by some 40 Point. That being said, she is doing better. She's gained some momentum. She's had a big endorsement from billionaire uh, Charles Koch recently in New Hampshire, which is coming up in about seven weeks. She's polling about 19 percent, about 20 percent in South Carolina, which will come after that. Uh, So she's she's getting a bit of momentum. She did pretty well in the recent debates, but but she really is more of the minority. She's representing more of the minority of Republicans. Uh, The the party is really the party of Trump that wants an American first type of party policy and and doesn't really believe in supporting allies uh, as we have in the past.
1: There's been quite a lot of narrative uh, on this side of the pond, uh, certainly, Natasha, not just here in the UK, but all across Europe, of course, about the danger implicit in this sort of uh, ennui with discussing uh, the the war in Ukraine and the threat that uh, Putin's Russia will continue to pose if that happens. Um, And yet we can see that there is unmistakably this dwindling Republican and broader public support for ongoing aid, to kiev do you think that we're going to hit a point where somebody needs to talk about what that would mean in the longer term in terms of where putin might go and what russia might do and the pose the threat that russia might pose uh if people don't reconnect with this issue
3: right i mean this is an incredibly important issue because russia has become so so dangerous so aggressive on the world stage and, and so willing to be brazen in its attacks on other democratic countries and just invading other countries. I think that Biden has been trying to make the case of how dangerous it is, what what's going to happen if the Western countries stop giving the aid that Ukraine needs and, and how this will make it that much more easy for the, the Russians to, to gain more territory, to to take over. Uh, this, this will have serious implications, of course, for Europe – European stability as well, um, because I think we can be certain that Putin is not going to just stop with Ukraine. He's going to become more and more bold uh, and become more interested in, in undermining democracies on, on the border there, which he thinks represent, you know, a greater Russia or Russia sphere of influence. So I, I can't, um, un, you know, highlight the urgency uh, more.
1: Well, we mentioned Biden there and just to sort of turn the lens back to his uh, operations in domestic politics. Of course, it was always traditionally, you know, he was very good uh, reaching out across the House, getting things done, uh, working in a more bipartisan way. Do you think he's willing to compromise uh, in terms of some of the slightly more outlandish or vainglorious um, demands that certain Republicans are making about this uh, aid to these other uh, nations? He's a savvy operator. But again, it's tricky for him, and his eyes, of course, are on uh, the November general election as well. To to a degree, what do you think we should expect uh, from from him in terms of how he's going to navigate this?
3: Well, because U.S. politics has become so incredibly polarized, it has become more and more difficult for politicians like Biden, who who had a history, of course, of, of bipartisan uh, deal making, to make any kind of deals with the Republicans who have become very extreme. But I think he's going to be um, in a corner here and he feels pretty strongly about getting that aid over to Ukraine and he's asked for some $111 billion, and that includes aid to Ukraine and other countries um, and he probably will have to make some compromises on immigration possibly for raising the initial standard for migrants to enter the asylum system or maybe becoming a little bit tougher um, on uh, the, the limitations uh, on her humanitarian parole program, which basically allowed the executive branch to temporarily admit migrants. Uh, so I see it most likely that he's going to make some compromises because I think he thinks the aid to Ukraine is just that important.
1: Natasha, great to have your insights this Friday morning. Thanks, as always, for joining us. That was Natasha Lindstedt joining us here on The Globalist. You're with The Globalist. We turn our attention now to Nigeria, a country that has been hit hard by a worrying shortage of doctors. The Nigerian Association of Resident Doctors has warned that a growing number of Nigerian physicians are migrating abroad, forcing several hospitals to shut down. Well, joining me here in the studio... Returning to Monocle, I'm delighted to say, is Dr. Ike Anye, Nigerian public health doctor based here in London, teaches at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and Imperial College. Dr. Ike is also author of Small by Small, Becoming a Doctor in 1990s at Nigeria. Uh, Ike, welcome back. Great to have you with us. Um, look, this is a big problem in Nigeria, but I gather your sort of uh, point of view here is that, yes, that's true, but that's part of a far bigger global
4: problem uh, of shortages of medical staff. Absolutely. And I'm glad you invited me because this is something I've been thinking about a lot over the past few years as someone who is part of that phenomenon of going back and forth, but also who's been fortunate to be in a position in different places in the UK and outside and to see this. And the truth is that arguably no country in the world is training anywhere near enough doctors or nurses to meet what the demand suggests they actually need in the coming years. And so each country is trying to address this at an individual level when actually the problem is a global one because we're having Nigerian doctors come here, British doctors going to Australia, Australia you know, and it's this musical chairs. And what we need is actually to act in concert as a global health community, and expand the global
1: pool. Uh, Now, that sounds like eminent good sense, which we've come to expect from hearing you on on Monocle's airwaves. Uh, But who is in a position to try and deliver a more coherent, a more global, a less fragmented approach? Because there are so many stakeholders, and naturally, most nation-states tend to be governed by simple, short-term self-interest. Who's in a position to actually move some of
4: those levers and try and get us going in that direction? I mean, obviously, I would say it, it was a World Health Organization. Um, unfortunately for the World Health Organization, and I don't blame them, I think it's a question of how willing our countries to listen to them because migration has assumed this huge boogeyman status. That means that it's difficult You know, for WHO, which finds itself under attack on so many levels and who I think are in an impossible position because, you know, they gain their authority from the fact that pretty much every country in the world is a member. And that's how they are resourced. But that also means that they've got to be sensitive to the political imperatives of each country's, you know, because, you know, these are your funders. And so you can't crack the whip at them. Uh,
1: it's a pretty complex situation. And I know with that caveat that it's a global challenge and it needs to be addressed globally. I did want to ask you in a little bit more detail about about Nigeria specifically, because it's not just in the health sector that we hear about a brain drain. And of course, one has to set that against the backdrop of an extraordinary booming population. And I forget the, the details, but by 2050, it's a, a, a crazy, almost incomprehensible number, Um I, I don't know, how how much of a problem is it, that, that brain drain, allowing that there is this sort of domino effect globally, but particularly in, in
4: medicine, it, it's presumably going to leave some critical shortages? Absolutely. And I mean, I, you know, I, I, when I say that it's a global problem, I don't intend to minimise that. Obviously, some countries have it worse than others, and Nigeria is one of those because we have such a huge population and so the need for healthcare is huge. And coupled, you know, that's linked with the fact that we also... Producing you know, a relatively large number of doctors, and Nigerians traditionally are mobile. You know, for various reasons, you could argue it's about our population and the need to move. And so, I think part of what's driving it at the moment is that the UK has had a shortage that's been exacerbated by Brexit and the leaving of EU healthcare workers. Covid and its impact, including burnout, which has led the UK has always been very good at this, lowering the barriers when they need to and putting them up when they don't. And so, you know, there are temporary healthcare visas. So coming to the UK as a doctor now is much much easier than it was when I came twenty years ago. But I have, you, you know, and so that's partly what's driving. And at the same time, Nigeria is experiencing. A serious economic downturn driven by COVID and all of that, but also by the devaluation of the Naira, the currency which is causing real you know, so you have these push and pull factors. Mm. Um, are there programs in place though uh,
1: in terms of internal government initiatives within Nigeria to try and entice doctors to stay? Because as I mentioned, this brain drain isn't exclusively in the in the medical sector. Are they looking at short-term incentives? Uh, are there any levers domestically that the government within Nigeria can can operate, do you think?
4: I mean, I think if I look at, you know, and this is me scanning, I think the only response has been a move by the, I think it was the House of Representatives, the lower chamber, to put in place a law that would force doctors to work for five years in Nigeria before they could emigrate. Uh, but, Again, you know, I think that's something that isn't unique to Nigeria because given that Britain also faces that similar shortage, if you remember, we are in the middle of doctor strikes here and the impression we get is they are being to take what we are offering or leaving it. So there isn't, you know, people aren't, it seems, interested in incentivizing, um, which sounds rather counterproductive.
1: And because we see um, examples of so-called medical tourism increasingly, whether that's in Southeast Asia or in Eastern Europe or to Turkey, whatever it might be, do do you think we are going to see those kind of dynamics internally, I guess, within Nigeria and more broadly for that region of West Africa as well? Or
4: should we not worry about that just yet? I think that will probably happen because I just... Two weeks ago, I was at the Royal College of Surgeons speaking at an event uh, uh, organised by something called the Africa Medical Centre for Excellence, which is being built by King's Commercial, so the um, commercial arm of King's College Hospital here, um, in a partnership with, uh, I think, the Af- Afregzim Bank, which is the African Export-Import Bank, in, and it's being built in Abuja, and it's being built to sort of global standards. And I actually endorse that move because I think at a very, if I want to be provocative, I would say at the moment, Western countries are outsourcing the training of part of their medical and nursing workforces to poorer countries in the world. And, you know, you can say there are red lines and places people aren't supposed to recruit from, but the reality is people get around those things, which is why I think the Niger government response is flawed, because Banning people from moving doesn't work. And what I'd recommend is that the UK, the US and co go and build medical and nursing schools in these countries, expanding the global pool and expanding potentially the number of doctors and nurses who stay there. And they can then take what they want. And you could go a step further, even more provocatively, and ask, why is it that it appears cheaper and easier to train doctors and nurses in these countries than it is to expand medical and nursing school places here. And if we are to follow the advice of economists about doing things where it makes the most sense to do it, one could provocatively ask, why do we still have medical and nursing schools in the West? Should we outsource all our training of doctors and nurses there, massively expand it, which will help address Nigeria's booming youth unemployment situation. You talked about the population. And I think it would actually foster world peace because you would be less likely to bomb or be derogatory about the country where your doctors and nurses are being trained
1: you're a very wise man. Okay, it's great to have you with us. We like some quiet provo- uh, quiet provocations here on on, on Monocle. Um, I hope the people that can move those levers are, are listening in this morning. But uh, great great to have you with us. That's Dr. Ike Anya. Thanks very much for joining us on The Globalist. Still to come in the programme, Andrew Muller gives us his wry take on the world. We learned how grateful we could
2: find ourselves being that at least the Prime Minister who had been tasked by the fates with leading the nation through this dreadful crisis had not attempted to have us believe that the dog had eaten his cloud storage. You're listening to The Globalist.
5: UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems – and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
1: Monocle's December January bumper issue has hit the newsstand. It's packed full of dispatches from the far reaches of the globe. Uh, It also features our annual, not to be missed, soft power survey. Who's at number one? Buy the magazine to find out. That, though, is not all that's hitting newsstands around this time of year. We're heading high altitude with the latest edition of our winter newspaper. Monocle Alpino, where you'll find everything from Arctic security analysis to festive culture and dining tips. Joining me here in the studio, Monocle's own Frosty the Snowman, it's design editor Nick Manis. Welcome. It was a little chilly coming in this morning, so Frosty the Snowman does feel appropriate.
6: Yeah, uh, got here, a, it's got
1: a little icicle hanging on the end of his on the end of his nose. Um, Nick Manis, now tell me, Monica Alpino. I'm a newspaper man. I love these big formats, Berliner, big lavish, beautiful images. We can hear the thick. Is it is that sixty? It's, it's, is it sixty GSM? You're hearing sixty GSM. I can M- hear right the now. giveaway crinkle, <laughs> um, but our listeners can hear it. What they can't do right now is see it. So, give us a little flavour of what's in the pages. Well,
0: I mean, it, it's it's as you said, it's a it's an annual. It comes out every every Christmas uh, and New Year's season uh, to, I guess, accompany you as you're snuggling in uh, by the fire, uh, and 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 I guess give a little bit of seasonal insight uh, across. I guess, topics that Monocle would typically cover. So, you know, we've got affairs, we've got business, we've got culture, we've got design, which is what I'd love to talk to you about because I, I think, personally, they're the best pages. Uh, fashion and, and, and some gift guides as well and and, and some thought-provoking essays too. So there's, 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 a, there's a host, uh, I guess, of, of wintry um, news stories in here. And, I mean, I guess a, across the design pages, we've got everything from, uh, you know, a, a beautiful... Alpine. Uh, it was a former farmhouse uh, that has been transformed into a, into a beautiful home by Jonathan Tucky Design, which is a, a, an architecture and design studio in London. So there's inspiration if you're looking to, I guess, refurbish or renovate your cabin. Um, we've got uh, you know a report on on lighting by uh, or, or a report rather on a new lighting store for. Lebanese lighting brand there's a lot going on here there's a lot of layers The pages
1: are jam packed
0: Lebanese lighting brand PS Lab and what uh, the reason I wanted to to bring this up I mean what's your what's your lighting situation at home or I know I know you had to Norfolk over the holidays what's the what's the lighting mood
1: I do like I mean I I think I fit in one just one of the reasons I fit in here I do like a low level lighting yeah nothing too stark um I know we don't like the word cozy but you want that that warmth and I think also a little bit of mystery. You don't want stuff too washed out with light. I, it's not just my advancing ears it is a little forgiving on, I, a, on a more I, weather-beaten I, face I, but do you know what I mean a little a little warmer a little just a little easier
0: I think so and, and I mean, and that's that's why I wanted to bring that up and, and you've answered the question correctly because we we posed uh that question uh to uh, I guess the team or not to I guess to absolutely the team at PS lab you in, should know in, in Berlin and I mean and and their their advice and these are just sort of some of the little nuggets you'll find in the paper but their advice was that you know when furnishing a room uh, you should look for a variety of, of, of lamp and lighting types so you know floor table and ceiling combining them allows you to I guess adjust the energy of the room across the course of the day so maybe during the day you get some overhead lighting going on it's a little bit more reflective of natural light and then you know as as uh, you know the day advances much like your years just sort of lowering the lights uh, and 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 really creating I guess a, a nice Cozy atmosphere heading into into the evening.
1: You know, are you suggesting the lights are gradually fading on poor old Tom Edwards? That's, that's <laughs> <Much> pretty, <like laughs> pretty it's pretty brutal at this time of year. Um, um, now, tell me, you've already described at the top. Look, this newspaper. I'm going dis- to describe it as a seasonal smorgasbord of stories. All the extras for you, a little bit of alliteration this early in the morning. Um, and I know we shouldn't make you pick, but have you got a favourite? I don't know, a favourite spread, a beautiful little feature there of some uh, household must buys. But pick a pick a favourite thing that people cannot afford to miss.
0: I mean, I think that that is my uh, there's a spread that has and, and a few of the things I, I alluded to at the top of the show there is a guide, I guess, to uh, objects that you might want to purchase for yourself or, or a loved one uh, at Christmas uh, you know, so we've got some lovely glassware, some stacking tumblers from Conran in the UK, there's a beautiful lamp uh, by Sweden's Vasberg designed uh, by John Pawson, there's a, a sensational little, little uh, Hotaru mini-boy paper lantern uh, made in partnership between 20 21, a British re- re- retailer and uh, Japanese uh, craftsman that specialise in that. So we've got that. We've also got the gingerbread houses, which I talked about now. I was going to ask you about those. I love this. So Snohetta are a uh, Norwegian uh, and American architecture firm, headquarters in, in Oslo and New York. Uh, but their Oslo studio, um, you know, rather than, I guess, just settling for, you know, your standard. Uh, Typical gingerbread house, you know, four four walls, pitched roof. They have designed uh, 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 and and developed blueprints for a, I guess, a, a Yule house with a, a slanted roof, big floor to ceiling windows uh, that you can purchase. Uh, download them, or you can, or you can actually also buy them from supermarkets in Norway. Uh, from d- the delivery service Oda, you can buy them and build it yourself. Now. Not only do proceeds go to uh, the Norwegian Refugee Fund, but they also go uh, to, well, actually, no, the proceeds don't go, but the proceeds of joy go to, I guess, you know, families or young people or, you know,
1: someone like yourself in their advancing years. Older people. Who
0: are are looking to have a little bit of fun at Christmas and maybe bring some architectural stylings to their gingerbread homes.
1: Um, I'm loving all of this, uh, Nick, and you've explained the gingerbread house beautifully. You did mention skis. That's obviously here. Skiing, Aussies. Did, never the twain shall meet. Tell me about mm, it. I mean, we've got a few mountains
0: on the east coast. I'm from Perth on the west coast, which is a you know arid, arid five hour flight. Water skiing uh, to, maybe? Yes, water skiing. If if you're up for that, more of a surfer. I mean, I would say I was actually a surfer, but I struggled uh, just with the you know concept of sharks. So I found myself uh, oh, I much more likely to retreat to and, the shore and for basic, a coffee
1: and basic coordination. I imagine also I mean,
0: a stumbling block. I mean, it's hard to say which came first, the sharks or the coordination. But either way, I wasn't in the water.
1: Uh, and you're quite a brittle man. I, yes, as human, I am. I mean, as the human goes.
0: Known for my knobbly knees. Uh, but uh, you won't see those knees uh, uh, on the ski slopes because obviously I would be uh, well covered and on some DPS uh, skis which are made by uh, assault, DPS are a Salt Lake City brand <laughs> which we've written a lovely story on and they're really some skis that you should consider uh, yourself, Tom.
1: Nick Moniz. Lovely stuff. Great summary. Uh, That's Monocle's design editor with his picks from the Monocle Alpino. My friends, that is on newsstands now, as is the, I'm going to say, award-winning December-January double issue of Monocle magazine. You can also find out more and get your copies by heading to monocle.com. You're listening to The Globalist here on Monocle Radio. Let's hear about some of the other stories we're watching today. A year after China abruptly scrapped its stringent zero-COVID controls, Chinese schools have been urged to step up daily health checks and work with authorities to help stop a wave of respiratory illnesses among children in recent weeks. Health authorities have said that multiple pathogens, such as the influenza virus and mycoplasma pneumoniae, were responsible for the case spike. G7 interior and security ministers are gathering in Mito in Japan for a three-day summit as part of the country's ongoing presidency of the G7 group. Officials are expected to exchange opinions on the world economy, regional trends and global challenges ahead in 2024. The mayor of Toulouse has put forward plans to charge residents more for their tap water in summer, offering a discount the rest of the year. Parts of southern France have been increasingly plagued by summer droughts, with seasonal pricing being introduced to encourage people to save water. Hayao Miyazaki's new movie, The Boy and the Heron, hits North American theatres today after its release in Japan in July, without a traditional marketing campaign. Its opening weekend earlier this year became the biggest in Studio Ghibli's history, surpassing Howl's Moving Castle. Its English-language cast includes Christian Bale, Willem Dafoe and Florence Pugh. This is The Globalist. Do stay tuned. Next month's Republican presidential caucuses in Iowa will mark the official start of the 2024 primary season in the United States. Republican voters in the small Midwestern state will play a pivotal role in narrowing down the field. The current frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, has been leading in the polls for months. A clear victory in Iowa could be the beginning of the end for his rivals. But as our correspondent, H.J. Meyer, reports, even in a deeply red state like Iowa, some conservative voters are ready to move
6: on. When people refer to America's heartland, they mean places like Iowa. Fertile farmlands provide a scenic backdrop to sheer endless miles of highways that connect rural communities and urban centers. The state is home to roughly 3.2 million residents and on January 15th, it will be the center of American politics.
4: The countdown to the caucuses is underway.
6: On the campaign trail, the battle for Iowa is heating up.
4: Dueling campaign events in
6: Iowa with just six weeks to go until the first of the nation Republican presidential contest. The state kicks off the 2024 Republican presidential primary calendar with its caucuses. In comparison to a regular primary election where voters simply fill out secret ballots, caucuses are much more of a public event. People meet in private homes, public libraries and school gymnasiums to vote for their preferred candidates. While the 40 delegates at stake in Iowa are rather insignificant to win the Republican nomination, the state is seen as an important campaign test and can provide some much needed momentum, says University of Iowa politics professor Tim Hagel. We're not the kingmaker, but we separate the contenders from the pretenders. This potential boost is especially important in a year in which former President Donald Trump appears nearly untouchable. Poll after poll has shown Trump leading his GOP rivals by a wide margin. But talking to voters in Iowa last month revealed that even conservative Republicans might be willing to move on, like Georgia Johnson.
7: I want the candidate to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and anything he talks about, he should be able to
6: back up. Or Margie Ackoff. Somebody that with integrity and that we can look up to. Both Johnson and Ackoff were among a number of people who mentioned words like honesty, morale and unifying when asked about characteristics they would like to see from a president. Those words are rarely used when describing Trump. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley are currently considered to be Trump's biggest rivals, but the former president, in his usual style, has dismissed them both. Polls show me leading Social Security, Medicare-hating Ron DeSanctimonious. By 50 points and even more, we're leading him by so much, he's like a wounded bird falling to the ground. Bird brain, that's Nikki Haley, who said she would never run against President Trump. I will never ever run against President Trump, one of the best presidents ever. Looks like she may actually catch Ron for a very distant second place. Trump, who, let's not forget, faces four criminal indictments across state and federal jurisdictions, continued to campaign in Iowa a state in which he gave one of his most famous remarks. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. He uttered those words in early 2016 on the campus of Dort University, a Christian university located in Sioux Center, Iowa. But even there, students struggled to fully endorse Trump.
3: In the 2020 election, I voted for Trump.
6: Personally, I think my Values might not align completely with him uh,
3: as a Christian. I think he's a fairly good president, but not the best person.
6: Nolan Carroll and Quinton Olson are both attending Dord University. Not only does faith play an important role for both of them, but religious and conservative values are important for a majority of people in this rural area of Iowa. Sioux Center has a population of roughly 8,000 and is the largest city in Sioux County. Trump won the county decisively in 2020 earning nearly 82% of the votes. It was his best performing county in all of Iowa. And people here are especially grateful for his role in overturning Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that gave Americans a right to abortion. For conservatives, like Marjean's husband, Dennis Eckhoff, it was a crucial
4: victory. I'm a Christian and I believe that uh, All all life is sacred and life begins at conception.
6: Trump aided the court decision by naming several conservative leaning justices to the Supreme Court bench. In addition to that, people also pointed to his America first approach and tough border policy as things they liked about the former commander in chief. These topics and culture war issues like LGBTQ rights and critical race theory have also taken a hold in Iowa. For minorities, however, the Trump presidency has been a challenge. The tenor of conversations got strained, uh, things that were not as blatant before became much more in your face. So yeah, there's definitely uh, situations where you heard
5: things that you may not have heard before.
6: Eddie Diaz is a former city council member in the city of Perry. He identifies as a Latino and his family moved to Iowa in the mid-90s for an easier life than that on California's farm fields. Even though almost 90% of Iowa's residents identify as white, the state's Latino population has grown by over 160% from 2000 to 2020. It's just one reason why immigration and border security have become a big concern of Iowans. Like John Grosskreutz. Protecting our borders and making sure evil people don't come in and want to do harm. Perry is located about 40 miles northwest of Des Moines only farmland and suburbs separate the two. And it's precisely those suburbs that in the future might change the political balance of power in the state, as suburbs are growing and are becoming more diverse. But in 2024, Iowa remains a Republican stronghold.
0: Anyone that would get this current president
6: out of there would be a win in my, in my humble opinion. For Monocle, I'm H.J.M.I.
1: Many thanks to H.J. Mai for that report. You're listening to The Globalist here on Monocle Radio. You're with The Globalist. It's time for a roundup of some of the latest stories from the world of television with the critic and broadcaster, Scott Bryan. A very good morning to you, Scott. Great to have you with us uh, today on the programme. And uh, we've got lots of intriguing stories, but let's start with, uh, well, like bad news, I guess, if you are still a BBC
7: licence fee payer, because it's heading up. It is heading up. I mean, this is a really interesting one because it has been set to be increasing for a fair while now. The BBC has had a license fee freeze um, uh, that was after an agreement with the government. So for the last two years, it's been about £159, but it's now going to be uh, increasing by about £10. Um, but what is interesting is that this is actually um, a lower amount than the BBC had actually intended. They they were told, they were reassured by the government back then, by about two years ago, that it was going to be rising with inflation. Um, But actually, the inflation rate has been actually higher than that. The measurement that they have actually gone up by has been a different measure of inflation than everybody was expecting. So this is actually going to be leading to a bit of a funding um, shortfall for the BBC. I think until now, they've been having to make roughly... Uh, half a billion pounds worth of cuts. That's led to uh, cutbacks on the amount of programmes that have been airing uh, on the BBC itself. There's been cuts to uh, various services across the board. Um, Long uh, running programmes, particularly on daytime, have been coming to an end. And of course, this, I think, uh, was kind of going to lead to the BBC thinking, okay, well, at least the cost of the licence fee is going to be going up. So those cuts will be coming to an end soon. But it does now feel that the BBC is going to be having to make even further cuts. And of course, that will make a big difference to the actual programmes we'll end up seeing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess this is all part of this ongoing... Uh, well, there's a bit of a... Yeah, there's all sort of culture wars and there's this government's anti-BBC uh, agenda and this will all feed into that and more more cuts or more savings to be made uh, will probably be bad news for listeners and viewers. I guess, Scott, they'll just have to tune into Monocle Radio instead, correct? I mean, that's... Yeah. <laughs> presumably that would be your, your advisory as well. Um, <laughs> speaking of, I guess, a different thing, surging uh, value generation, um, and this is driven by uh, the Premier League, one of uh, Britain's great soft power exports, of course, talking about football or soccer, depending on which market you're sat in. Um, it's the biggest ever broadcast deal I think has been wrapped up this week. Yes,
7: yeah, Sky has acquired um, a quite a significant majority of the domestic broadcast, uh, broadcast rights um, alongside a um, broadcaster called TNT Sports, uh, which used to be BT Sports, and has come to a tune of more than one6 uh, billion uh, pounds a year. So, of course, if you sort of total it together, that's more than six billion for more than four uh, seasons. And it's and it's interesting because, of course, Sky can't have all of these matches because there's competition um, rules that say that not one broadcaster can be the only place to go and do it. So they've sort of split it between. TNT, which is a broadcaster um, co-owned by uh, BT and Warner Brothers Discovery. But I'd say that, that obviously this trickles down to the consumer in one way if a broadcaster is paying quite a lot of money for it. And also I think is what's rather interesting is that for a long while now we've been thinking the future's going to be involved with streamers. It's going to be the likes of Amazon going to be spending a lot of money in this space or or perhaps Netflix getting into live sports at one point or another. But it seems to be actually the satellite providers or the old sort of style providers are the ones that are willing to cough up for the moment. And Amazon, which has got some rights for, for the Premier League for the next few uh, seasons are actually backing out, so 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 I think it's it is kind of the case that that at a time of course inflation we're talking about inflation in regards to the BBC there is also inflation on on sports rights too, and that will no doubt trickle down to the cost of actually um, um, signing up to these pa- packages, and I guess also a concern by customers you know whether they would be able to commit to a certain provider for for long term, knowing that it could you know, potentially at one point down the line go to a, one of their rivals.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, Scott. And actually, this idea of how uh, new entrants or newer entrants contribute to sort of shifting sands, these changing dynamics in the provision of coverage, whether that's of sport or current affairs. This is a narrative we see over and over again. And there's another area that you've picked to talk about, which is actually the provision of children's television programming. And again, the huge seismic change that some of these entrants whether that's you know Netflix or the YouTubes of this world have had it's recalibrating the landscape but I gather plans are afoot for some of the smaller sort of regional players in this space in this country to to get together and talk about what they're going to try and do next.
7: Yeah, there are plans for like a a summit of essentially a lot of the different makers of kids um, programs, broadcasters, um, even the likes of YouTube um, to come together to actually talk about um, the issues that are facing um, uh, uh, shows that are made for younger audiences. Because what we've now had is for younger audiences an abundance of choice. Of course, you've now got the entire internet, I'd say, compared to when we were kids, where there are far fewer channels or far fewer options. There's now so many shows and so many different places where you can get your entertainment from. But I think there's a real concern uh, in the industry over two things. I think, firstly, down to funding. Um, the old economics have kind of been turned on its head, really. A lot of these shows used to be well funded by junk food advertising. And of course, there's been big restrictions made, particularly on commercial TV. So that's massively dried up um, the amount of money um, that used to be available for um, CITV and other sort of commercial children's networks. But you've also had the license fee kind of trickling down and causing fewer programs made for kids by public service broadcasters. So that's issue one, funding. And issue two is whether younger viewers are actually having quality and whether they're being informed and educated, as well as being being entertained because, of course, if you have the complete free reigns given to to young viewers, well, where they can watch, they might end up watching something that is very flashy and very good on, let's say, Netflix, but 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 maybe not be actually providing the educational um, remit that parents would be expecting. So I think it's the idea about about bringing everybody together to try to address. Okay, how can we sort out? Um, uh, the the funding throughout it? Do we need to go and push for the government to provide more funding? They have done so more before. Is it down to maybe cross-partnerships we have between different networks? Normally, um, uh, the likes of Netflix and the BBC or others have worked together on other projects. Could they work together with children's programmes, perhaps? But also just, just how can we ensure that kids' programs are going to be as good as they were when we were younger. Because, of course, if we get into the habit of watching a really good show, um, that, that really helps us. I think it creates viewing habits. And, of course, when these kids grow up, you'd want them to stay on these networks rather than le- leaving them entirely and heading somewhere else. Indeed. Well, it's only anecdotal,
1: but the general quality of kids broadcasting is infinitely... I, I may be a slightly older vintage than you, Scott, I don't know, but there's so much more, and it's so much of it is so much better now. So it, it's not all doom and gloom. Very briefly, uh, Scott, this time of year, speaking of old tr- Christmas traditions, I used to love getting the, the, the radio times in the mid-1980s, leafing through, finding out what I was going to watch at Christmas. Um, a couple of very quick uh, hits. What are you looking forward to watching on the small screen this uh, festive season?
7: I mean, I think uh, Doctor Who has obviously had um, such wind beneath its sails over the course of the last few weeks. You've had um, uh, Russell T. Davis, who uh, rebooted the show back in 2005, come back on as showrunner. You've had um, uh, you know the, the like, people like David Tennant, Catherine Tate rejoin, of course. At Christmas, we'll be having shooting out. while He'll be the next Doctor taking over the role. They've also now got the show Light signed up with the likes of Disney. So it'll be really interesting how um, seeing where that, where that will go. But I always like kind of old festive favourites. And BBC Two are doing a whole night dedicated to the late, great Caroline in the Herd, um, the great co- comedians um, profiling a lot of her work. And they're also doing a special documentary on, on her life work. And that will be out during the Christmas period as well.
1: Uh, that's an excellent, some excellent suggestion, Scott. Um, thanks as always for taking the time. You can toddle off back into your TV TARDIS for us until your next,
7: oh, well, 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 well. <laughs>
1: next reappearance here on Monocle. Scott. Thank you uh, for joining us here on the Globalist.
6: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
1: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers
6: in the world of finance today.
4: To find out how we could help you,
6: contact us at UBS.com.
1: Now, with the festive season fast approaching, alpine enthusiasts will be itching to strap on their skis and hit the slopes. The good news is this year's ski season is starting early in several resorts, certainly across Europe, as many slopes welcome bumper snowfall. Our Jessica Bridger is an avid skier. She filed this report from the Swiss Alpine Resort village of Clusters Cernius.
5: Welcome to the Early Season Monocle Ski Report. What's your favorite part of the ski season? While some might say they love the depth of the high season with everything running at full tilt, my favorite part is now. The early season, the pre-season. Resorts open up one by one, kilometer of pist by kilometer of pist. The first time you click in your bindings for the season, is deeply satisfying. There's ski season, and there's everything else. In Switzerland, the season runs from November to April, autumn to spring. Being in the great white splendor, above the tree line, above everything, nature is big, people are small. In Kloster, Switzerland, everything is still quiet in town, muffled in part by the cumulative meter of snow that's fallen over the past couple of weeks. There is a current of excitement in every ski shop though, as residents and visitors alike stop in to kit up, maybe buying new goggles or just making sure everything is tip top for the season. The ski season is well underway above cloisters. famously one of the first ski areas to open in the German-speaking Alps every year. This year, November 10th, was the golden day. The weekend after opening saw 6,000 people on what was a sunny Saturday. While 6,000 is a lot, high season numbers, weekdays have a tenth of that this early in the season. And on any given Tuesday, things are very quiet, no lines, no fuss. Just you in the swish and carve of your skis as you remember how vast the world is. The best part of the season so far is that the powder days this year already nearly match the total from last year. Last year, everything was Schnee vom Gestern, snow from yesterday. With a record low snowfall in many places, some resorts at lower elevation could not even open at all for the season. This year, we are already getting buried. The preventative avalanche blasting is in full swing, booming through the mountains. And this weekend, maybe even some valley runs will open, making the the end-of-the-day Ski Home or to Apres possible, arguably the best way to get to the finest part of the day. And from now until Christmas, all of the resorts across the Alps will awaken from their season's sleep. The skiers will all arrive, ready to begin again. For Monocle Cloasters, I'm Jessica Bridger.
1: Many thanks to Jessica Bridger for that. You're with The Globalist here on Monocle Radio.
7: Tune in to Monocle on Culture, where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film, music, art, literature and more. It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. With
1: industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed.
0: Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in (laughs)
3: your front room.
1: Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at twenty hundred London time and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts. Finally on today's programme, it's Friday. That means, good news listeners, it's time for Andrew Muller's weird and wacky take on what the past seven days have taught us.
2: We learned this week, and so very shortly after last week's near-Anglo-Greek war over the British Museum's rockery decorations, that the United Kingdom had also, in relatively recent memory, narrowly avoided a dust-up with the Dutch. Can we get some sort of mash-up of clogs, windmills and bicycles? We learned that among the ideas floated by then Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and a reminder at this point that Boris Johnson being Prime Minister was somehow a thing which actually happened, was the just tremendous, nothing can imaginably go wrong wheeze of dispatching the special air service to raid an AstraZeneca factory in Leyden amid a dispute over COVID-19 vaccines, the details of which we will confess to not recalling in great detail. One of the few things we have in common with... The then occupant of 10 Downing Street. We have not as yet learned quite which senior officer talked the Prime Minister out of staging the source material for what would have been a fabulously hapless sequel to A Bridge Too Far, and why, yes, that is the theme music we're playing under this. Thank you for noticing. But a grateful nation thanks them for their service and hopes their eyes have by now rolled back down. However, we did learn a few other things from the ongoing inquiry into the UK government's response to COVID-19, which has sufficient material to work with that it may well end up outlasting the pandemic. We learned that Boris Johnson had not taken his last risk with the health of the public at large, as he blithely incited a mass stampede to be the first to jauntily observe, that would make a change, and or there's a first time for everything, or broadly similar jocularity. I swear by almighty God that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We also learned that there is little faulting Boris Johnson's hindsight, as he eagerly agreed that, in retrospect, responding to warnings of a hugely infectious airborne respiratory illness by declining to permit enormous crowds to gather at sporting events might not have been the brightest of notions, as only about several tens of millions of people suggested at the time. With hindsight, uh, as a symbol of of the government's earnestness rather than just... Um, as, uh, uh, you know, uh, being guided by the science, uh, we should perhaps have done that. And we learned how grateful we could find ourselves being that at least the Prime Minister who had been tasked by the fates with leading the nation through this dreadful crisis had not, or at least not yet, the inquiry still has a while to run, quite attempted to have us believe that the dog had eaten his cloud storage. Do you know why your phone was missing those 5,000-odd WhatsApps? I don't know the exact reason, but it looks uh, as though it's something to do with the app going down and then uh, coming up again. There now follows a complete roll call and in alphabetical order of everybody in the United Kingdom who has no difficulty believing this. Anyway, sticking with the theme of arguably underqualified individuals being elected to positions of considerable responsibility by easily pleased electorates... (laughs) We learned, contrary to the famous and probably willfully misconstrued but whatever aphorism of F. Scott Fitzgerald, that there absolutely are second acts in American lives. Specifically, we learned of what appears to be the near-term plan of recently unfrocked U.S. Republican Congressman George Santos, who made an amount of history last week by becoming only the sixth person ever to be bounced out of the U.S. House of Representatives by their fellow lawmakers. Santos, you will recall, got the shepherd's crook treatment because it was felt obviously intolerable that such a character, an obvious huckster and chronic fabulist facing multiple criminal charges of fraud and conspiracy, was allowed anywhere near high public office in the United States. Could we get a sound effect of an irony-meter short-circuiting? We learned that Santos clearly did not plan to return immediately to any of his previous careers. Navy SEAL, Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist, Baroque bassoon virtuoso, having forsaken all those and the offer of a contract to play middle linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys. And yes, we are just making fun of his well-documented tendency towards resume embroidering, pretty sure he can't sue us, to do this.
7: Hi, Katie. Um, thank you for the love, thank you for the kindness. You know, Botox keeps you young, fillers keeps you plump.
2: We learned that Santos had opened an account on Desperate Celebrity Jukebox Cameo and was charging punters circa $200 ago to record personalised video messages.
7: My favourite TS song is definitely going to
2: be Trouble. I knew you were trouble when you walked in.
1: That's
2: me. And we learned that in one almost endearingly shameless commission, Santos was even willing to accept payment from Democrat Senator John Fetterman to take a pop at troubled Democrat Senator Bob Menendez, whose present pain Santos may well feel.
7: Hey, Bobby. Uh, look... I don't think I need to tell you, but these people that want to make you get in trouble and want to kick you out and make you run away, you make them put up or shut up. You stand your ground, sir, and don't get bogged down by all the haters out there. Stay strong. Merry Christmas.
2: That distant rumbling. Probably is, yes, Thomas Jefferson turning in his grave and so forth, for we learned via the above a lesson both bracing and disheartening, which is to say that we learned via someone who did the sums that in his first 72 or so hours on Cameo, Santos may already have cleared the salary he was trousering annually, representing, or as the case may well have been, not really representing the voters of the New York Third. More than $174,000 in just four days, nearly twice what we make in a week. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller.
1: My thanks, as always, to Andrew Muller. And that is all we have time for on today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Tom Webb and Emma Searle, our researcher, Neoma Ekwe, and our studio manager... Tamsin Howard. After the headlines more music on the way and don't forget to catch the briefing live at midday London time. The Globalist that returns at the same time on Monday. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks very much for tuning in.